Hello, and welcome back to the Artist Sanctuary with Whitney Morrison, where we gain clarity and inspiration as we explore the heart, mind, and soul of being an artist. I am your host, Whitney Morrison. I am a singer, a recent alum of the Lyric Opera of Chicago's Ryan Opera Center. I am an emerging artist, a music minister, a thought leader, speaker, an arts advocate, and an artist advocate. And I am here to be your companion as we take this journey together toward honing our why we do what we do and allowing it to inform our lives as artists. Today, we are talking about the Rona Renaissance. Never heard of it? That's okay, because I made it up. hunch for a while that we were on the cusp of a real artistic awakening and a cultural rebirth, much like a renaissance. And so I have been meaning to study about renaissance movements and if there was any um, correlation between those and pandemics or epidemics, health crises. And so I did that. And so... I'm going to tell you about what I found and if my hunch was right. So uh, before we do, let us pray. And if you don't pray, I will. (sighs) Help me spread your fragrance wherever I go. Flood my soul with your spirit and life. Amen. That prayer comes to us from Mother Teresa. And I would like to shout out my fellow Aeolians who are listening. Woo, woo. Uh, we sang that while we were in choir together. So if you sang that with me, you know, um, send me some. Tell me. <laughs> Let me know you're listening. Housekeeping. The Budding Artist Offering Grants application will be available for next episode. So please look out for that um, in two weeks. We should have that application up and ready for you. We're so excited to get this money to the people that need it, hopefully into your hands. Um, Also, y'all, you see me with my little baseball cap and my glasses? This is the first time we're doing like a real like history thing on the podcast. So I thought I'd disguise myself as a college student. How I'm doing. (laughs) Today, we don't really have an anchor quote, but I decided to use a quote to kind of put us in the mood for our discussion today. It's not really the anchor quote because we're not going to refer to it like, like we usually do. Today, I'm really just sharing with you what I found and some of the things that that stuck out and let you know if I was right or if I was wrong, and uh, hopefully we can leave better. But uh, this quote is from Theodore Roosevelt, and it says, The more you know about the past, the better prepared you are for the future. The more you know about the past, the better prepared you are for the future. So I am so glad to have had this 
learning opportunity to find out if there was a link between um, Renaissance movements and global or large-scale health crises. And y'all, I was right there. <laughs> so I looked up the two Renaissance movements that I knew about, the one from the 1300s, 1400s in Europe, and the one in the 1920s in Harlem, Har the Harlem Renaissance. And so, y'all, I was like, ooh, ooh, ooh. So, I am no historian, so I don't have a whole lot of dates and stuff. But the thing that I always enjoyed about history class was not the specifics, but the overall trends and what that meant for things. So that's kind of how I will approach this. But feel free to fact check me and, you know, correct me or um, share what you found or whatever, because we're just doing this together. So, yes, 1348, the Black Death. I think it's also called the Bubonic Plague, but that happened in Europe, and it was terrible, claimed so many lives, and the felt effect of it was in certain cities, sometimes a quarter, sometimes close to half of a city or a town would be wiped out by this thing. Like, it was treacherous. And, um... So the thing that I'm hoping we'll get from looking at these pandemics and then these Renaissance movements very, very quickly um, is to hopefully get some comfort. And I'll share with you some of the comforts that I got, which are kind of random and um, and some perspective for us to, like the quote says, be better prepared for the future. Because, like I said, I think we on the, uh, the cusp of another Renaissance. So, uh, yeah, 1348, the thing that got me out of everything I read that was the comforting part was that so many people responded to it so differently. And I think that has been the biggest struggle for me is responding to it so differently um, from people that I know and love. And it's just like, what is going on here? And everybody's like, well, Earth is so ghetto. And, you know, that's... <laughs> funny to me that's not the language I use but it's funny um and like I can just see so many people getting exasperated like I saw this one lady going off y'all I don't post y'all pictures of <laughs> are you going out to eat go home because I want to eat too right but the I found so much comfort realizing that in the 1300s there were <laughs> such similar responses. So some people thought that God was punishing, um, punishing them. And so their idea was to, um, to, um, get rid of whatever sin they could. And people were like, you know, I can't get this word right. Flat, flat, doing flagellation, flagellations. I never, I always read that word. I never heard it. <laughs> they say, no, I said this last time. They say, don't make fun of, how people mispronounce things because maybe they learned it from reading. This is one of those, right? But they would go on like different tours just trying to get spiritually right so they could not experience the, the effects of the, um, uh, the pandemic, which I thought was so interesting because some people are very, um, very conservative, not 
politically, but just with with all of this, they like uh uh I'm saying home uh uh we go we go we go anoint the door no you're not going in here you got to spray you down with Lysol so I see that as people taking it very seriously and trying to do what they can to um I guess mitigate the circumstance and then y'all guess what when I read this I was like oh my gosh okay well. <sighs> Y'all, people was in the bars. <laughs> they was out living their best life during the Black Death, believe it or not. Because people figured they was going to die anyway. Again, um, if you didn't listen to Unglamorous Superpower, go back and listen to that because we're dealing with that. But um, they figured they were going to die anyway. So they were just like, let's live it up. We don't know how to, uh, how to avoid this thing anyway, so we might as well just uh, do our thing. And I was like, oh. Oh, so all of this, you know, difference. I mean, those are about two ends of the of the, of the spectrum, and uh, and they still here. And I'm like, oh, so y'all, when things happen, I have a hard time understanding people that don't think like me, and so, or sometimes I have a hard time understanding myself. But to realize, if you put a rational person in a certain situation with certain stimuli that many of the reactions will be predictable. And something about the predictability of those responses gives me such comfort because again, like unglamorous superpower, we all just grappling with our mortality. We all just grappling with it. And, um, Ooh, my friend, Eliana, maybe I got to get her on this show. I, I don't even do guests, but she just be putting me on game and we were talking about this other the other day so this is another study i want to do and tell me if you want me to do it on here i don't know if it has anything to do with this so maybe not maybe i won't do it whatever but she was talking about tight and loose cultures and so that is something that i think is interesting but that tight cultures if i'm remembering tight cultures are about um community and um doing what's best for the whole and more, I guess, macro thinking. And looser cultures are more about individualism, are more about um, the present, are more about um, permissiveness and no uh, prescribed way to do things per se. And to me, I see that playing out that, that based on the way people think or they think about rules, they think about you know, so many things that that may be informing the way that they respond to all of this. So that's just comfort for me. That's all. The other thing is perspective. Um, one thing that I thought was fascinating is that um, during this time of that pandemic um, and then consequently the, the, the Renaissance was that the feudal system was weakened and started to wane at that time. And if you don't know about the feudal system, that's kind of like what well, your your slaves, I guess that's what you would call it, where they were very poor and um and they were dependent. It was very stratified in the in the social structure, and that began to wane because so many people were gone, so many people died that they needed to hire, they needed to pay the people right and actually hire them because they didn't have, half their workers was gone. And so that was so interesting to me. Um, and we'll talk about this perspective again because that theme comes back up in the, um, 
in the in the other pandemic, believe it or not, which is like um the other thing that I that I really liked um was this and this is where we get to the art, was this difference between the church, things being more um more sacred in nature at the um at the base of the society and then things being going toward more secular um uh, a more secular foundation, which I thought was so interesting, right? So that the patrons were not just the church. Like the church didn't just support the arts at that time, but that individual families began to um, to support the arts then. So think about the Medici's, right? And so that was so interesting because in my brain, even now, I'm trying to think how do we get in America, how do we get the funding for the arts out of the private sector, right? That it's not, that it doesn't necessarily have to be from individual donors. How do we get something that's a little more sustainable, something that is, um, yeah. So anyway, so I thought that was interesting. Um, and I just want to talk about that because after that, um, pandemic came this rebirth. And I just want to talk about the one major thing that hit me because, you know, you can look all of that kind of stuff up. You know, you got all the major, you know, the painters and the thinkers and, you know, they're going back to Greek and Roman philosophy. There's so much. I don't have the capacity for that. I'm not a historian. Okay. I'm just telling you what I got. Okay. You go do your own research, but I'm telling you that I was right too, though. That part, that part. <laughs> But the one thing in the arts that I think is the organizing principle around that renaissance was humanism. And um, my roommate talks about humanism all the time, especially in religious contexts. She's a theologian. Um, but this focus on man as the center of his own universe, as opposed to this penance idea, like the best and highest life before this was to pay penance to um, be kind of sad faced and, um, repentant all the time. The low, the lowest life you could lead was that of the most virtue, right? But they began to think about it as, um, this human potential, which is still where we are. Interestingly enough, that these ideas are pretty old, but they aren't, um, but they aren't the only things you can think, which I, I like that because, you know, everybody's the highest potential now and, you know, and, and that's, that's what we know, but everybody hasn't always thought like that. So, uh, man as the center of his universe and nature, which I am very, uh, I'm very inspired by. So it was good to understand that a lot of the self-help and the psychology and all of that, a lot of the philosophy around that was rebirthed at this time. I want to talk about one other thing. I feel like I'm talking fast, but I don't know. It's a lot to go through and it's not a lot of uh, stories I got about this. I'm just telling you what I found. So Leonardo da Vinci. Why am I saying it like that? Leonardo da Vinci. He was one of the flagship artists, I guess, <laughs> during that time. And something about his life really grabbed me as I was reading all of these different sources, right? There's so many other people. I do not have a gift for names. I don't have a gift for, uh, <laughs> for dates. So forgive me for the broad sweep because that's what this is. Okay. By the way, <laughs> by the way, I sang, um, 
Sister Rose in Dead Man Walking. And, you know, I had to put on an accent. Uh, what, what, what did I say? Uh, words on forgiveness. Doing eels. <laughs> I said, I, I had to borrow from my grandma and, and, and put a eels. Do is as um, two different syllables. That's random, but people got it from the, <laughs> from the audience. <laughs> That's random. Probably you don't care about it. Whatever. Leonardo da Vinci. I was really taken by, first of all, the small quantity of his work and the vast quantity of his interests. Um, these days I'm trying to allow myself to be a whole human, right? And to lean in to the parts of myself that people have encouraged me to abandon, to focus so intently on being an artist. And so for him to be an engineer and so many other things and be fascinated with anatomy and, you know, flight and all of this stuff. To know that he is the one who still did, you know, the Mona Lisa and the, what is it? The disciple one? See y'all, I'm not good with, I'm not good with facts. Okay. I don't remember what they called, but I had, you know, I could see it. Right. <laughs> but to know that he has these very significant works of art, but that he wasn't particularly prolific. Right. And, uh, that reminds me that for significance, I really believe we could choose quality over quantity. And it also encourages me that maybe if I allow myself to be vast and full, that the fullness of expression can come from all of this vastness. And I don't have to be so narrow in, fo in focus. Yes, I dedicate myself to being a singer, right? So I'm not talking about just being here, there, and everywhere, right? But leaning in and accepting and growing all the parts of ourselves, it's interesting that he was able to do that and still have a certain significance in his art. Um, and I'll tell you all about this, right? So... I have been struggling because I literally have done so much of my life or put so much of my life in service of singing, sometimes to my detriment, right? Um, like, and I'll share something really vulnerable with you all. Um, just because it came up, I am a very kinesthetic learner, movement, um, athleticism has always been important to me. Um, in high school, I chose between going out for basketball because I had been in basketball fifth, sixth, seventh, and eighth. Um, and you know, see my, <laughs> my little cap, I'll be working out. <laughs> um, and so it was like, oh, am I gonna go out for basketball or am I gonna go out for choir? Because I probably can't do both, but those, those, um, things in my life pretty much had equal weight at that point. And so I say all of that to say, when I started studying, right, I was told, don't do this kind of exercise. You don't want a six pack. You don't want to do this kind of lifting because it'll do this to your body. And, and so, 
Um, you don't want to lose weight too quickly because it'll da da da. So there's been so much of my physical training and different types of things that I've liked to do that I have sacrificed for my singing. Yeah, I don't think this is healthy, but like when I've had certain opportunities, I have like literally like some athletes like overweighted because I knew where I needed to sing, like literally gained weight because I knew where I needed to sing and I knew what the preference was on the on what they would want to hear. And I knew my voice would be different if I weighed more. Right. And so I've always been, I've always been kneeling my athletic life or my physical life to singing. And even now, like I have my weights now and I'm just like, uh, is this gonna make me stiff? Uh, 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 uh. Um, and I don't know, I'm still working on it. I don't know what'll come of it. But I'm, I find comfort and I'm trying to get some perspective to explore if I really have to make all of those sacrifices like I've made or if I can find other ways to do it. Like, like now I'm learning about like stretching my abdominal muscles because if I work on my abs, I literally just feel like I don't have as much space to breathe. And that's a real tension. <laughs> that's a real tension. And I have sacrificed certain physical things to, to my art. And so it's interesting to see Da Vinci and how significant he was able to be while he was still such a vast person in many different directions. So that was long, but I just wanted to share that because yeah, we doing this together. <laughs> the second one is, um, a lot of people have been talking about this, especially in the U S the Spanish flu. That happened in 1918. And we know that the Harlem Renaissance was in the 1920s till the Great Depression. You see what I'm saying? You see what I'm saying? <laughs> comfort and perspectives, right? So the comfort, y'all, these people had to wear masks and they had to close stuff down. Like, it seems like... I don't know. It seems like the world ended when we had to do that, but literally that's what these people did. Right. So I found a lot of comfort in that. And, um, you know, these young girls in one of the articles, these young girls wrote a, a letter about how their school had to close and that they were rather, um, you know, be at home than be at school with the, with the virus or whatever it was, you know? And so I was just like, Oh, Oh, and the other thing that gave me some comfort, I don't know why it feels comforting to know that people in a different day and time went through the same thing, but it is. So, um, yeah, like church closures, like people were, I mean, the churches were closed and now it's so interesting because, uh, there's this group I have, uh, you know, with certain believers that we thought we would be closed for, you know, a couple weeks and then, you know, and then we'll go back to church. And a year later, I'm here talking to you and we go get on our Zoom call. Amen. Um, so it was so, I don't know. I don't know the word, but when I read about this preacher holding service for 30 minutes 
on the steps of the church and the parishioners out there. Like I could just see it like it, like it was a movie. And I'm like, wow, we're not the only ones. <laughs> we're not the only ones. And people made it through and they got back to life. But the Harlem Renaissance, 1920s. So it happened just after this Spanish flu epidemic. And um, the one thing that I really want to think about with this Harlem Renaissance is that, oh, I should probably tell you what it is, right? <laughs> if you don't know what the Harlem Renaissance is, it's just um, people were migrating to the North from the South. Black people were migrating from the North to the South. Uh, from the South to the North, <laughs> called the Great Migration. And many of them ended up in Harlem, which they thought was going to be just an extension of Manhattan and that they were going to have white families there. But they had so many empty places that they had to start, you know, allowing the Negroes there, which is interesting because that's similar to what happened with the, with the, um, with the feudal system, right? They were just they were just kind of desperate. And so that's how that system fell apart. And, um, and that is how Harlem became black is because they were just desperate. They needed places. So the black people moved in white flight, the other people moved out. And so there were so many middle-class black people and there was this just resurgence of art. And, um, I thought it was so interesting because so much of what we know about the civil rights movement was kind of birthed in that time, right? Um, and the one thing, I'm not gonna talk about a whole lot because again, I'm not a historian, okay? Um, and I just did this because I want to know. <laughs> um, but instead of just respectability politics where the better you look, um, the better you can present yourself, the less you will be the target of racism. That's kind of how that goes. And as opposed to like proselytization, that's another word I struggle with, uh, evangelizing about blackness to say, oh, you need to, um, you need to treat us better because this is why we're valuable. That in the Harlem Renaissance, what was so powerful about it like humanism in the European Renaissance, expression was what built black pride. Other, um, in contrast to these other things, respectability and evangelism and all of that, just expressing themselves, which we think like, ain't that what we do? But no, like that was the organizing principle that allowed the Harlem Renaissance to be what it was, that that black people could just be black and they could talk about their experiences. They could um, get it out. Sometimes I watch the pimple poppers. And so I want to tell you about Express. I remember seeing, um, what's her name? Somebody Lee, I can't remember what her name is. Um, she would take the little instrument and press on the little you know, bump and allow the other things to 
the the pus or the whatever the skin inside to come out and she would call that express and i was like i never thought about express being to press something out of something like express <laughs> you know and so when i think about expression i think about taking what is inside of us and giving it out getting it out and I wonder if that was what they were doing because um, there was a lot going on in that time. So for perspective, they called it uh, the Red Summer. So they had a pandemic, mm -hmm, a renaissance to come. But before that, they had the Red Summer and it was race riots. Was anybody here last summer? <laughs> I said, oh, wait a minute, huh, huh, huh? And I, I actually saw one, um, one article that was paralleling now and this, this thing. So it's not just me. Red Summer, and y'all, I'm from Chicago, so this story really got me. Eugene Williams, he was one of those say their names. He was on a raft, and forgive me if I got the some of the specifics wrong. But he was on a raft in Lake Michigan. So I'm from Chicago, so I know this really well. He was on a raft in Lake Michigan. And he crossed an invisible race line in the lake. And so he was in white waters at that time. Like... If you live in Chicago, it's just like, I mean, the beaches are segregated sometimes, but how can you, how can you do that with water? Like goes into the wrong part of the beach in the South side, the wrong, the wrong part of the water in the South side. And a grown white man starts hurling rocks at him, hurling rocks at him. And the boy drowned and they sent the place up. They sent the place up. So that were, those were the protests. But before that, there was so much racial tension because white men were looking for somebody to blame. So there was a lot of anti-Semitism, believe it or not. There were, and there were a lot of um, raids on black people. Like they were just burning churches and the Ku Klux, like it was crazy. And so when Eugene Williams happened, it was like, it, you know, all bets were off. And so this racial tension amidst the pandemic, I'm just like, yo, we are not the only ones who've lived through, through something like this. But it also shows me that in all our efforts, we may be able to be effective, but it won't always be um, immediate because Again, we've come a long way from the 20s, but we're still dealing with some of this stuff. So pace yourself, saints, because if history is any indication, we still got a long way to go, you know? But I say that to say that all of this is connected, right? This pandemic period, this 
white terror. And I saw this on the internet today. Like I, I hear all the stop Asian hate. I'm with you. Stop it. Cause what, what? I saw this lady on the, this older lady just on the bus stop today. I, it sickens me. And it makes, it almost brings me to tears to think that somebody would attack her. Like what's wrong with people? But what, to me, what seems to be the real issue is stop white terrorism. Okay. Done with that. that that's all I'll say about that. All of these things were connected. This epidemic, this white terrorism, this expression. And, um, really all I want to say is, y'all, we're not alone. Okay? Like, we're not alone. And it's something about realizing that these things are predictable given the circumstances in a lot of ways. Some can say that, you know, we haven't learned from history, which I think is true. But also for those of us trying to find a way forward, there are so many lessons. And I guess all I'm really saying is I really do believe that we are on the cusp of another revival. I call it the Rona Renaissance. But there is so much going on. And I'm just wondering if we can learn from these Harlem Renaissance artists and I wonder if it will help us to express to get it out and as we get it out as we create as we imagine a new if the significance of that will be lasting like it was here in the civil rights movement because, you know, Langston Hughes was writing then and I, w I watched the great debaters. <laughs> I watched the great debaters the other night. I've just been in history. So I had the black church documentaries. I'm doing this research, watch the great debaters and to see what their, what, what their ends were that they all, at least some of them had this, specific trajectory towards the civil rights movement. And they were inspired by Langston Hughes. They were inspired by these artists. And so I wonder if that's us, if the eyes of history are on what we will express and if that will build the stage for more fairness, more beauty, more justice, more dignity. I don't know, but maybe the Rona Renaissance will come and hopefully we'll be ready. So until next time, let us have our benediction in the form of an affirmation. Come on, you can say it with me. May we live in wholeness. May we give from fullness. May we create with passion. Love y'all. See ya.